Okay, we are back in Matthew chapter 5. We're looking at verses 7 and 8 tonight. While you're looking that up, you got any questions about anything thus far pertaining to the Sermon on the Mount? way of a little bit of a review, um, I've become more and more convinced in recent years that the best discipleship material that you're going to find, you know, if theoretically if you were a new believer or you're a, an experienced believer, you've been around a while, that the Sermon on the Mount represents one of the finest uh, offerings of discipleship material you're going to find. And it's been overlooked, tragically, uh, for a long time in church circles for, for different reasons. Um, none the, not the least of which is, um, uh, is attributed to uh, some of the particular persuasions of how people have looked at the Bible. Um, that for some reasons made people think that this is more of a picture or portrayal of you know a future time, a millennial time, and uh, and I think that's that's a that's a big miss, and it should have been caught sooner, I guess. But if you were going to be uh, helping someone who was a new believer in in learning to walk with Christ, this would be a great place to take them and just walk through it, just like we're doing. So this is um, this is discipleship oriented. Kyle, for your spiritual formation team. So I'm being cooperative with what you guys are trying to do and provide for the church. This is a great place for you to be and to get get a, a round of um, ammo, you know, in your in your uh, weapon, so that you can go out when you when your one comes to Christ, then you can volunteer to begin discipling them by using the Sermon on the Mount. Does that make sense? So, any questions about anything thus far? Sorry? Well, it is what it is. Uh, Matthew 5, 7, and 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So as we, um, we look at these, Leon Morris said the first four Beatitudes that we've already looked at express in one way or another our dependent, uh, dependence on God. The next three kind of portray the outworking of that dependence and that relationship with God. And so that's where we are. We looked at the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then what we're seeing now is coming out of that, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Um, so if you see, if you look at it in that, in that way, I think it's helpful that the first four provide a foundation or uh, soil, if you will, for what comes out of that. In these, uh, in these latter verses, latter Beatitudes. So let's think about the merciful. And what that means. What do you think 
when he says, blessed are the merciful. Happy, happy is a little bit superficial as a, de, uh, a descriptor or a definition of the, of the term blessed, uh, though it's often translated that way by people, but it's not complete. I would say more like uh, contented, satisfied. Uh, so blessed, satisfied, contented are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What's he saying? What does mercy mean? Anything else? Withholding. Sorry? Withholding. Withholding? As Charles mentioned, some say grace means to give what is undeserved, and mercy is to not get what is deserved, or not to give what is deserved. For instance, if you are uh, in line, you've been convicted, and you are destined to be uh, executed, judged, experience wrath for something, not to receive that wrath, not to receive that judgment, is mercy. To receive a pardon would be grace. That makes sense? So mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. That makes sense? Jesus is actually describing here in this passage, as we said, the genuine Christian, the genuine Christian character. He has opened up with the poor in spirit. And we said order is important in the Sermon on the Mount, or particularly in these Beatitudes. The poor in spirit. And we said that means what? Humble. This would be the broken. People who are empty of self. They don't see any... They, they understand the problem with themselves. Okay, that they, they have no claim, no expectation uh, from God other than judgment. Secondly, the believer must mourn. This means to be sorrowful. But sorrowful for what? Not just sickness or illness or pain or suffering, but for sin. So... The humble person recognizes I got a problem in here. I got a problem here in my heart that my heart is rebellious. My heart is corrupt, is deceitful. 
I had this problem, and I'm sorrowful for that. I mourn what, what is going on in here, what is happening. It's not so much mourning that I have sinned, but that I even want to sin. Make sense? I'm not, I'm not sorrowful that I have sinned. We all know that most everyone experiences remorse when they do something they shouldn't do. That's not exactly what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that I even want to, that I have a desire to do these things that are grievous to God is what we mean by mourning sin. Thirdly, the believer is encouraged, the, the believer who is poor in spirit and mourns over sin then has no recourse but to be meek. It's a person that can't be boastful, can't be bragging, can't be puffed up because he's seeing the truth in himself, right? So you can see how this, you know, is just falling into place. You know, dominoes falling, uh, bricks. Right. This is all. This is all opposed to the to the mantra that the world is advocating. You know, the philosophy of the world is just the opposite. Don't be humble. The humble get walked on, get tripped. You can't be meek. I mean, the meek get pushed be around. Be out. Be prideful. Be yeah. Arrogant. Swagger. Mm-hmm. You know. And and everything we do, I mean, we the football season just started. And I, I watched a couple of games this weekend, and I, I wish I had uh, money, somebody pay me money for every time I heard that word swagger or, you know, the, the confidence that comes. And, and that's what you have to have when you're on the field, right? You know, you got to have that or you're going to get run over by the opposing team. If you're on the battlefield, you need that. If you're out in the marketplace competing with businesses for work and for money and all those kind of things, there's a certain level of that, you know, braggadocia spirit that's got to be there. And it does. it is all opposite of what Christ said. That's why Christ was so, such an enigma. Why he was so ill thought of by the people in power of his day is because he didn't reflect anything, reflect the values of the world at all. He didn't even then. You know, think about the Roman culture. If there's ever been one that, you know, had as this mantra of pride and arrogance and, you know, all those kind of characteristics, it was the Roman Empire. But this has been true of the world ever since Adam fell, right? You don't have to look but to the next generation and see that attitude in Cain or Lamech or right on down down the line of... Um, the redemptive history. So the believer who is poor in spirit and mourns over sin is meek. Fourthly, the meek then hunger and thirst for righteousness. When a person is at this spot, then he understands what it means to want hunger and thirst for righteousness. I shared with you last week that one of the probably the best quote Billy Graham ever got, gave. Somebody asked him what he, he wanted more than anything else, and he said, I want to be holy like God is holy. He got it. He understood what our destiny is. 
because that's what we're headed toward. And, and so those that want Christ, that want to follow Christ, understand that this has separated me from God. Sin continues to be a problem that grieves the heart of God and has cost him everything through Christ. This has made me into a meat person and a person who hungers and thirsts for what I don't have, which is the righteousness of God, which comes only through faith in Christ for me. So it does. It turns the world system, the world philosophy on its head. And fifth, we are told that true Christians follows, true Christ followers demonstrate mercy. These people are the merciful. Why? They understand the need for mercy, don't they? Or they should. Show me, show me somebody who professes to be a Christian that doesn't understand the need for mercy, to give mercy, and essentially what Jesus is saying, I'll show you someone who's not a true follower. They don't, they don't have an economy for that term. You know, because they're still controlled by the world system. So, mercy, again, is for the weak. It's for, you know, the welcome mats in this world. Jesus is preaching this sermon right out. This is his first message coming right out of the gate. He says, you've been wanting the Messiah. You've been wanting the Messiah. Well, the Messiah is here. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is what citizenship in the kingdom of God looks like. And these people are sitting out there going, this guy's nuts. This guy doesn't get it. You don't rule the world with this. You don't conquer the world with this. You don't kick out the oppressors with this. So the Jews are going, how can anybody believe this guy's the Messiah? And the Romans are going, this guy's not a threat. You know, he's nothing. He's, he's a loser. But he's saying, if you want to follow me, this is what, it's, this is what you're going to look like. John MacArthur said, for the most part, the days in which Jesus lived and taught were not characterized by mercy. The Jewish religionists themselves were not inclined to show mercy because mercy is not characteristic of those who are proud, self-righteous, and judgmental. To many, perhaps most of Jesus' hearers, showing mercy was considered one of the least of virtues, if it was thought to be a virtue at all. There's also this idea of a uh, quid pro quo that goes along with terms like mercy and love. That, uh, and Jesus gets into this and he turns that on his head later in the Sermon on the Mount, right? The idea in culture was, well, if someone shows mercy, then you should show them mercy. If someone loves you, then you should love them, right? And what does he say to that? You've heard it said that you should love your, you know, those who love you. But I say to you, he says, you've heard it said that you should love those who love you and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I mean, you can see the Pharisees and the scribes and the Romans and the people who might gather around and hear this. And they're looking at each other and going, have you ever heard such dribble? I don't know why anybody's scared of this guy. He's not going anywhere. 
He says it in verse uh, 40, verses 43 and 44 of this chapter. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Be merciful to those who are merciful to you. This is not the correct way to understand it. There's not a, a quid pro quo. He's not talking about that. He's saying that we should be merciful because we understand mercy. We understand the need for mercy. It's not, it's not a work. You don't show mercy in order to get mercy. Some people read this that way. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Okay, if you show mercy to everybody, then that means Jesus will give you mercy, right? Wrong. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you show mercy because you're a merciful person because that's, that's what I've called you to be, made you to be. That's a characteristic of being part of this kingdom life. But you're not doing it to get mercy. You're doing it because you've already received mercy. Right? There was a popular Roman philosopher called mercy the disease of the soul. It was the supreme sign of weakness, he thought. Mercy was a sign that you did not have what it takes to be a real man, especially a real Roman. The Romans glorified manly courage, strict justice, firm discipline, and above all, absolute power. They looked down on mercy because mercy to them was weakness, and weakness was despised above all human limitations. During much of Roman history, a father had the right of uh, patria potestas, of deciding whether or not his newborn child would live or die. As the infant was held up for him to see, the father would turn his thumb up if he wanted the child to live or down if he wanted the child to die. If his thumb turned down, the child was immediately drowned. Citizens had the same life or death power over slaves. Any at any time and for any reason, they could kill and bury a slave with no fear of arrest or reprisal. Husbands could even have their wives put to death on the least provocation. <coughs> How does that strike you? Not very well. And yet, and yet, we live in a culture that is so callous to abortion. Millions upon millions of children are getting this same, this same indictment. Day by day by day. And what's coming around the bend is euthanasia. If your life is no longer considered valuable, then we'll go ahead and, and take that out too. And yet it's easy to look at this culture and go, how horrible that is. But I'm thinking Paul who lived in that culture might look at us and go, wow, you people didn't learn anything, did you? Didn't learn anything. Abortion reflects the same merciless attitude. A society that despises mercy is a society that glorifies brutality. So, you know, we tend to condescend a little bit toward the Romans for their gladiators and their, their bloody entertainments and all those things like that. But, you know, if you look at our culture carefully, we're not much different. We're not much different. So, mercy. There are uh, some ways to try to, some contrast comparisons that I think help us understand mercy even a little bit better. Mercy is giving relief, basically giving relief where misery abounds. 
Misery is giving relief where misery abounds. Give me a scriptural illustration or example of, mis- of, of uh, mercy. And you can't use Christ in the atoning work. Use, use the character. Yes, sir, Sam? When uh, Lazarus was raised up. Okay. Mercy. Restored his life. But we might argue that it wasn't necessarily mercy for Lazarus, but who was it mercy for? His, uh, family. his, his family and friends. Yeah, they were grieving. Uh, so this is, this is, death is the indictment upon a fallen world. That is the curse So what happened to Lazarus is something that happens every day. It happened in your family today. It's a reminder of this curse that we're under. And yet Jesus reversed the curse and gave them what they didn't deserve. Didn't give them what they deserved and gave them what they didn't deserve. He gave back life to Lazarus, which is the grace. But he took away the misery they were in as well. Turned it into joy. Yes? Yeah, Yeah. Culture said... She should what? Be stoned. Be stoned. Wasn't that the argument that the guys made when they brought her up? The law says this woman who was caught in adultery should be taken out and stoned. She should be executed. She's a blight. Never mind that they never brought the other party. And if you're caught in adultery, doesn't there have to be two? I mean, the last time I checked, that's the definition. It takes two people to tango. But she deserved to be executed according to the law. Jesus essentially gave her mercy. In the midst of her misery and her brokenness, he gave her relief. Jonah, um, when he heads back out after he gets to Nineveh and then sits under the tree thing. Yeah, I just don't know that Jonah knew how to receive mercy. Right. <laughs> you know, and that is possible. You you can sometimes reject or or refuse to receive the mercy that God's given you. God gave Jonah mercy on several turns and he continued to be most most satisfied in his own misery. Yeah. How about the good Samaritan? Guys Two guys go down, two religious guys passing down, going on their way to Jericho, walking down from Jerusalem. They've been up in the temple doing all those things. And they pass by a guy who's been beaten and robbed and left for dead. And they go out of their way to bypass him. Third guy comes along. He's a Samaritan. I mean, you know, racial components abound in this story. All right? Uh, This guy goes out of his way. To go to this man, and what does he do? He applies, he binds up his wounds. He gives him what he doesn't deserve, what's not deserved. He, he addresses his misery by pouring oil and wine on those wounds and dressing them. And then he displays grace by putting him on his, his animal, his donkey, whatever he, he had with him, and taking him down and committing to put him in an inn somewhere where they could continue to watch over him giving him again what he what he doesn't deserve. Joseph Joseph's brothers betray him, they hate him, they want him dead, 
They want to kill him. They sell him into slavery. Next best thing, for all practical purposes, he's a dead man walking, right? He's in Egypt. We know the story, long and short of it. He's, uh, he, he goes through all the, the trials and tribulations there, and he ends up as the second in command in all of Egypt. And God uses him to feed the world that's going to die under the blight of famine. His brothers come down to get food so that their family can live. And Joseph recognizes them. And, and finally he lets them know that he knows who they are and proves to them that he's their brother. And what happens to them? They are in total fear. He's going to exact vengeance. He's going to exact retaliation. He's going to execute us. They knew they deserved it. You know? They, they had essentially killed him. They had put his father through misery and torment all this time. And here they were. They knew this is what they deserved. And what did Joseph do? He said, you meant it for evil. You meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. God wanted me here just for this moment at this time to help bring about salvation for all of his people. So... You know, while you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Therefore, there is no vengeance to take. Mercy. He, he extends mercy. He had all the power and he had all of the right to do what they feared he would do. But he brought relief to them in their misery and their guilt at that time. So scripture's full of this picture of mercy. One more. Yes, sir. Absolutely. The leper who came to Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. He'd heard the, the complete sermon. He said, surely this man can heal my affliction. Yeah. Or one so audacious to scream out and ask for it like blind Bartimaeus at Jericho on the way up to Jerusalem. And Jesus said, what would you have me do for you? And he said, I want to see. And, and he did. Mercy. The mercy of God. Um. did that mercy and forgiveness travel together somebody put them up here they're not equal it's important to understand that they they are not equals in fact we might say that mercy is bigger than forgiveness they have a lot in common yet they're distinct God's forgiveness of our sins flows out of his mercy if he doesn't have mercy, there's not going to be any forgiveness, right? So mercy is bigger than forgiveness because God is merciful to us even when we do not sin. His mercy, Lamentation says his mercies are what? New every morning. You know, you arise before you've even had a chance to sin. God's mercies, in fact, allow you to live, right? By all rights... Sin, when sin entered the world, we should have been right. We should have been obliterated in that moment by the holiness of God. But He didn't. He extended mercy. Um, mercy and love. Mercy, forgiveness flows out of mercy and mercy flows out of love. Somebody, uh, Aaron, look up uh, Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. You should be happy tonight, Linda. It's warm in here. 
God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So did you hear that? Read that first line again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Because of his great mercy, because that mercy came out of his love for us. As mercy is more than forgiveness, so is love more than mercy. Love loves even when there is no wrong to forgive or need to meet. Mercy acts because of need. Love acts because of affection, whether there is need or not. So there's no mercy apart from true love, but there can be true love apart from mercy. Mercy and grace. Mercy is also related to grace. Nobody said that. lumping in forgiveness with grace. Mercy, mercy and grace are very similar, but they're kind of two sides to the same coin, right? Mercy is related to grace, which flows out of love, as forgiveness flows out of mercy. In fact, mercy and grace have the closest possible relationship, yet they are distinct. Mercy and its related terms all have to do with pain, misery, and distress due to sin. Grace, on the other hand, deals with sin directly. Mercy deals with the symptoms. Grace deals with the cause. Mercy offers relief from punishment. Grace offers pardon for the crime. Mercy eliminates the pain. Grace cures the disease. Mercy says no hell. Grace says heaven. That may be the best way to think of it. Mercy says no hell for you. Grace says heaven for you. And then there's mercy and justice. Justice gives exactly what is deserved. Mercy gives less punishment and more help than is deserved. Justice gives exactly what is deserved. Yeah, that's why it's always interesting. I've, I've noticed when we talk about these things, um, in our culture, we talk a lot about fairness. We talk a lot about justice. And, and the truth of the matter is, we don't understand either concept. You know, God never promised fairness. And, and we should be thankful that he didn't. You know, we should be very thankful that he didn't. Uh, in fairness, God's the only one that's being treated unfairly in, in what we know as creation. Uh, because of his holiness and our sin. Uh, but he's willingly taken that for our benefit. Some people have difficulty understanding that mercy and justice coexist with God. Do you ever have that trouble? How can God be just... And merciful. How can he be both at the same time? The cross. The cross, yeah. I mean, that's, that's where the cross fits in. That's what makes the cross make sense. Is that when you put the cross in there, then you see the justice of God that's exacting the wrath that's due for sin, and at the same time, Offering mercy to the sinner, to us, so that we might be pardoned and be restored to him, having what we don't deserve. If God is completely just, and he is, we know that he could not, uh, he could never not punish sin totally. For him to be merciful would apparently negate. His justice. Mercy that ignores sin is false mercy. 
There are instances of that in Scripture. Uh, Saul's mercy to the king over in 1 Samuel, where um, God told him to kill all the inhabitants, and he let him live in his own mindset. God was very angry. That was a false mercy that, uh, that, that Saul extended. Uh, there's also the treatment that David gave to Absalom when he was a young man growing up, and he let him skate. You know, he let him get away with things rather than holding him accountable. Um, he let him off the hook, and so he gave him a false mercy. We see that running rampant in our culture today, do we not? We see it running rampant with our kids. Uh, if you hang around a school long enough, talk to a school teacher, you're going to find out that discipline is something that's almost impossible um, because parents are not teaching their children and utilizing discipline, and so you know they're trying to bargain for cooperation, and that's a losing battle. That's a losing battle. False mercy. Uh, we're told that we're being unkind to hold people responsible for their sins. Actually, to cancel justice is to cancel mercy. To ignore sin is to deny the truth, and mercy and truth are inseparable. From where does mercy come? That's an easy one, right? I know it's getting warm in here. You're going to sleep. It comes from God. I mean, mercy has its source in God and God alone. It's not a natural attribute of man, but a gift that comes with the new birth. We can be merciful in its full sense and with a righteous motive when we have experienced God's mercy and only then. So we can't be merciful apart from the mercy of God in us. So it's impossible for us to be merciful in order to get mercy. Right? Donald Barnhouse said, When Jesus Christ died on the cross, all the work of God for man's salvation passed out of the realm of prophecy and became historical fact. God has now had mercy upon us. For anyone to pray, God have mercy on me, is the equivalent of asking him to repeat the sacrifice of Christ. All the mercy that God ever will have on man, he's already had. When Christ died, that is the totality of mercy. There could not be any more. The fountain is now opened and it is flowing and it continues to flow freely. And it will until God says, that's it. That's the end of time. How do we put mercy into practice? So he says, as you experience mercy, go and be merciful. How do you do that? If it's not a natural attribute, natural tendency, how do you do this? And don't tell me it's easy. It's not easy. It's not easy. But through the power of God's grace working in us, through the presence of His Spirit, we can become merciful to those that we encounter. We can become merciful. And most of this is displayed through physical acts, like the Good Samaritan. He gives us, he gives us an example, or Joseph, you know, of, of forgiving, displaying mercy uh, to someone who deserves judgment. You, you know, how many times we see something happen to somebody that, and we go, well, they, des they got what they deserved. <coughs> You've been there? Have you said that? Yeah, we did. You see somebody, you know, blowing off, blowing up, blowing off. He's bragging, he's boasting, and he gets humbled. And you go, well, he got what he deserved. You go, glad to see that. There is justice. Right? That's not mercy, is it? 
It's not. And yet we do it a lot, uh, unless it's pertaining to us. That's exactly right. It's all about me. That's yeah. uh, so why Jesus said to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, fix, visit the sick, and imprisoned, and other helps as needed. These are acts of mercy. They're putting others first. They're um, bringing relief to bear into someone else's misery. Mercy is evident in our attitudes toward people and situations. To have pity for the person who languishes under the oppression and destruction of sin. To confront and gently correct others regarding their own sin. Okay? So, as, as a fellowship of believers here, our responsibility is not to wink at someone's sin. Our responsibility is not to say, well, that's just Aaron being Aaron. Or that's just Bob being Bob. No, Sin, for those of us who are part of the body of Christ, mercy involves gently correcting where there's sin apparent. Because, why? Well, first of all, because it's bringing reproach upon the person of Christ. I mean, we are His ambassadors. We are His representatives. The people in this community, the people in this world, they can only know Christ through what they see in us and through His Word. So if we're not merciful, we're not giving them a very good testimony of who Christ is, are we? So we want them to see us being conformed to Him so they can recognize Him. To pray for those who struggle with sin and its consequences. To proclaim the gospel the most merciful thing uh, is the most merciful thing one can do. That's why who's your one is so important. What results should we expect mercy to produce? <clears throat> the person who has experienced mercy of God is merciful. They, the demonstration of mercy produces true spiritual fruit. <clears throat> mercy does not gain a salvation, but it is the evidence of salvation. Okay. <clears throat> Pure in heart. I feel like I'm shortchanging the second beatitude each week. Trying to overdo it. Pure in heart. What does that mean? Well, let's start with pure in heart. For they shall see God. That's out of Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, by the way. It's one of the tests that he had to pass to get to the Holy Grail. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean? <clears throat> There's a close correspondence between the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, and the one we just examined. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And there's a link between the second beatitude and the one we're looking at here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The merciful are those who recognize their poverty in spirit. They understand that they have nothing in and of themselves, that they are empty. They have no claim to God. 
uh, to his acceptance or presence. Only by God's mercy are they spared from his wrath. Only by God's grace are they accepted and approved. There's a similar connection here between the, the one in the beatitude in verse 4, those who mourn, and the one here in verse 8, blessed are those who are pure in heart. Those who mourn, who have sorrow for what? For sin's ruination of their heart. They're, they're mournful because sin has had this, this debilitating impact upon their heart. Now we see, blessed are the pure in heart. There's hope for the one who has ruination in his heart, right? That can change. They were mourning about the state of their hearts. They were mourning not only because they did wrong things, but because they wanted to do wrong things. They realized the central perversion in their character and personality. But now, blessed are the pure in heart. Who are they? They are those who are mourning about the impurity of their hearts. The only way to have a pure heart is to first realize you have an impure heart. Right? That's why, that's why we always talk about sin. You know, you have to be convinced that you have a problem before you want the cure. Right? If you don't feel sick, you're not going to take medicine. How many of you grew up with one of those mamas that made you take castor oil? I've heard all these stories. There's one, there's two, three, four, yeah. But, yeah. I never had to take castor oil, at least not that I remember. I remember. That's what I've heard. But you know, if you so you didn't want to be sick, did you? No. You wanted to deny. I'm not sick. If you were running 105 fever, sweat rolling off, and you know bones feeling like somebody's beat you with a ball bat, you would deny you were sick in order to avoid the cure. You had to first admit you were sick before you you were ready to take it. And it's the same thing with sin and salvation, with forgiveness, with the purity of heart. What does he mean by heart? Well, it's speaking about the center of the personality, not merely the seat of affections and emotions. It's the total man, the spring out of which everything else flows. You know, when you go, I, I was raised up in the mountains and uh, my family uh, folks own some acreage up in the, the Smoky Mountains there. And uh, the Snowbird Mountains, and uh, and there was a spring up there called Cold Spring Gap, and it just a little spring that came out of the side of the the mountain there. I mean, you know, you could sit there and catch all the water; it would trickle out in a couple of minutes. It seemed like to fill your hands, and yet that would become a bigger stream on down. But you know, I didn't ever want to go down the stream and drink out of the stream down there because there's all kinds of impurities. There's animals and there's people and all kinds of stuff on down the creek fishing and doing things like that. But once you were up where it's coming out of the mountain, you were free to drink as much as you wanted, right? Because that's where it was pure. It was undefiled. This is true for uh, the heart, the whole heart, the, the seat of affections and emotions. What comes out of the heart, Jesus said, is where the problem is. What comes out of the mouth is what's in the heart. Here's the spring. And here's what's coming out of it. So if there's impurities coming out here, it's because there's impurity here. If you've got impure water a few feet from that spring up there, it's because it's coming out of the, it's coming out of the mountain impure. But if it's not, 
Same thing is true with the heart. Yeah, well, I know we all misspeak from time to time. Um, and and what we put in, you know, what what you put in, what you feed on. The heart is also the seat of all of our troubles. Out of the heart proceed our evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, according to Matthew twelve thirty four. Humanism, modernity claim that man's problems are caused by environments. Listen, that argument fell right out of the gate, didn't it? You don't find a better environment than the Garden of Eden. God pronounced it good. And how long did it take for man to fall there? Not very long. Not very long. And the pure in heart are those who are new creatures. 1 John 3, 3. I'll look it up and read it for you. Save you some time. First John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when, we, that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, and everyone who thus hopes in Him, purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Without the pure in heart, there is no seeing God. There is no access to God. There is no acceptance to God. And the only way that happens is through Christ, right? Any questions? I told you we cut that one short, but...